So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus 3. Exodus 3.14, and we're also going to look at Isaiah 45, so you can kind of put your pinky there if you want. Um, but I'll read the uh, text, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dig into those. So uh, continuing our foundation series, Biblical Doctrines for the Future of Christendom. So we're talking about the triune God today. So Exodus 3, verse 14, these are the words of God. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Let's pray. Our Father and Heavenly God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us and making your sovereignty known to us. We approach you today as a body of believers looking for understanding, looking for guidance and truth. I ask for your help, Lord, and if I I am uh, at all in error in describing you, may you be gracious to me in your correction. Help us to live by the breath of your Holy Spirit. In the name of the Son, our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we we talked about the topic, we covered the topic of infallibility and its connection to the doctrine of Scripture. Um, By way of a reminder, infallibility simply means that it is not possible for God to err. God can never be in error. He never speaks something that's not true. He never does something that's not right. God is just perfectly um, infallible. He, he doesn't err. So we, we also tied it to the doctrine of Scripture in that when God speaks, infallibility speaks. So when God speaks and makes something known, it is never wrong. It is never um, immoral. It is never unrighteous, those types of things. So the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, it's breathed out by God Himself. It reflects God's own self-revelatory intentions. So we look at the Bible because it's God revealing himself to us. He's shown us his son, um, the Lord Jesus, who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And he also gave us his word so as to make that known to the ends of the, ends of the earth. So as I stated last week, it is, the Bible is our final authority on everything, all matters pertaining to life and doctrine, not the Pope, not a person that's not Jesus. The Bible is our final authority. It's inspired by God. It's inerrant, means it doesn't uh, have any errors in it. It's infallible, can't possibly ever have an error. And as such, we also talked about how it's sufficient for us. The Bible is sufficient. And it's sufficient so that we can know God and know who we are. We need to know who God is so that we can know who, who it is we are. And Calvin and his institutes kind of walks through those connections as to why we need to, we need to know God so we can know who we are. And if you don't know God, you have a bunch of people running around trying to figure out who it is they are, and they're defining themselves apart from God, which is you know, going to be wrong. They might get a few things right, but for the most part, it's going to be wrong. So, men cannot properly interpret the world apart from the authority and perspicuity of, of the Bible. Perspicuity means the clearness of it. God is clear. He's not unintelligible. He spoke, and it's clear, and we can understand it. doesn't mean it's not hard. Sometimes it's difficult. But men cannot interpret the world around them apart from the authority of the Scripture and apart from the perspicuity of the Bible itself. So coming out of this doctrine of infallibility is a doctrine of God, and that's what we want to cover today. And, and so in this, in this sense, what we're talking about is contemplative theology. theology. Uh, that is, we, we do have the Bible in front of us. Some of you have it in your lap or at least on an app on your phone. And we do have what it tells us and what it reveals to us about God, about God's nature, His being, who He is, His personality, His actuality. Um, And yet, in one sense, though, being the finite creatures that we are, we need to be able to deduce certain things, certain good and necessary things from Scripture. Right? The Bible doesn't tell you what color of house you should be looking for, what color of car. But we can deduce certain things and, and rule out, you know, uh, a hot pink car, maybe. Uh, aesthetically not very pleasing, right? Um, so we have to deduce things from Scripture, too. We have the authority of the Bible, but we have to use our brains. Um, so it doesn't, 
It, the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us everything about everything in that specific sense. It doesn't tell us everything about God, and that is because God is incomprehensible. God is in, ultimately incomprehensible. We cannot exhaust the inexhaustible God. We, we can't reach and peer into the depths of God and then finally have this full-blown experience of, oh yeah, now I understand him. We're finite people. We can't, we can't do that. So we can't fully ascertain God, intellectually speaking. We can't fully wrap our minds around God, for we are limited in knowledge. And one of the biggest things we're limited in is even using words to describe the indescribable, right? Even putting words together to try and talk about who God is is a very challenging thing. So the Bible does reveal a lot about God, but we, we've also been given the created order around us. We have brains in our heads, most of us. And, <laughs> and in order to deduce certain things, um, we need to use our brain. We, we have to use what God has given us. So we need to do more than biblical theology. We have to step into the realm of what we call metaphysics, the intangible, the ideas. And metaphysics uh, tends to deal with the nature of something, the being, our being, or our essence, those things. And so we have to sort of step out of the biblical theology in some regard and start thinking about metaphysics, things that are more like contemplative and ideas about who God is and how God can be, how can he be perfect in those things. And we need to do that to understand God. So that's what, what we mean by contemplative theology. is it's, it's not just words on a page that tells us the truth about God. It's, it's thinking, it's ideas, it's those types of things that come into play. So it will, today will feel like, more like philosophy at times. But that's not really a problem because for us, God owns philosophy too. too. So he, he owns philosophy, he owns theology, and those things really do belong together, although we've separated them out. Now, uh, I'm just going to say at the outset of this message that um, the best book on the topic is definitely Dolezal's book, All That Is In God, that I mentioned a little bit ago. Um, I, I, it's funny, I, I finished the book and then realized he teaches at my alma mater, <laughs> Karen University in, in Philadelphia. Um, he must have come after me. I never had him as a professor. Um, but the book, All That Is In God, I, it's a mind bender. It's a really good read. It's well, it's well written. And what, one, of the thing that, one of the things that he does is defend what we call classical Christian theism. Theos is a Greek word for God. Theism is just a reference to divine or divinity or God. Um, theism is, uh, like in our culture, theism could be the false god of democracy. Demos, the god, the people. Um, we talk about gods generally, but also God specifically being the, the one true God. So classical Christian theism, this is something that Augustine taught all the way back in the 4th and 5th centuries. It's something that Athanasius taught as well, early church fathers. We find much agreement um, on the doctrine of God with Roman Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas. We, had, we would disagree with him on a lot of things, but as far as what he teaches on the doctrine of God and who God is, uh, we would find much agreement, um, way more agreement than disagreement with him. And certainly men like John Calvin, the great reformer, and Herman, Herman Bovink, who came after Calvin. Um, Bovink's work is, on this stuff is just absolutely bar none. Uh, some of the best stuff that came out of the Reformation and Reformed theology. Just understanding who is God and what words can we use to describe this true God. So we have a lengthy history of classical theism which does run up against modern explanations of the doctrine of God. I'm not going to get into the modern uh, aberrations and problems. You can read the book if you want to. Um, but I do want to simply say, and just to say, I confess that I do believe and hold to a classical Christian theism position. And that I believe there's history, I believe there's biblical precedent. Um, so you may have never heard that phrase before, maybe you have, but, um, but I, I, I think it to be very well a, a good explanation, especially when you consider the nonsense of today. Things like open theism. Open theism believes that God is still learning too. God is learning. God doesn't really, God doesn't actually know the future, but he's figuring it out. Um, some lighter versions of that, like a process theism, where God, he knows some things about the future, but he's still figuring it out as we go, sort of thing. Um, and that, of course, runs up against the classical Christian theistic position. We believe God knows everything at all times and in all places and he doesn't have to learn in history God just is so 
those can be discussions for later if you want to know more about that. But let's look at our text there in Exodus 3. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am that I am, depending on your version. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When God called Moses, you might recall the burning bush revelation just a few verses prior. I'm going to come back to that in a second. God instructed Moses to go back to Egypt, to go back. Uh, Moses had escaped, if you remember, and met God. And God says, go back and demand that the people, my people, are let go of, of Pharaoh's captivity and rule. So they needed to come out of Egypt. And Moses, in that moment, asked for the name of God, assuming that the people might ask which deity is talking about. Uh, they were in Egypt, and the Pharaoh, Pharaoh was in charge, the sun god Ra. There was all these different gods of, of the Egyptian gods, and, and so they may have been just as um, confused by this too. If, if Moses comes strolling in and says, hey, to the million or so of you that are in slavery, we're out of here, and God said so. And they're going to say, well, which god? What's his name? What is he? Who is he? So I am, God said, I am who or that I am. In verse 16, God calls himself by his name, the Lord. In the Old Testament, if you see the word Lord in all caps, it's done that way on purpose. So you know that that's the name of God, what we call Yahweh. And so the Lord in all caps means Yahweh. That's his name. Now the Hebrew the, the Hebrew there, Yahweh, actually sounds like I am in Hebrew. Hayah, asher, hayah. That's how you, um, I am that I am, or I am who I am. So it's, there's a connection. It's kind of a word play. God's name also can be construed as I am. I am the existing one. That's just who I am. So this revelation of himself to Moses was God's way of proclaiming his eternal self-sustaining, absolute, self-determined, sovereign being. God just is. I am. Uh, Jesus says it also in the, in the Gospel of John. Ego, I mean, in Greek, he's, I am. And that's a reference, of course, to, to this Hebrew phrase. So this word encompasses everything about God's, what we call, ontological being. Ontology, just a fancy word that refers to the nature or being of something or someone, the, the essence of that thing. Uh, when we talk about the ontological trinity, we mean who is God in and of himself, not in reference to creation, not in reference to anything else. Who is God or man? What's the ontological nature of man or, or woman too? Who, what is a man supposed to be? What is a woman supposed to be? And uh, to rule out any uh, objectionable things, you're not supposed to cross that gap. <laughs> you just are. So that's a different, different message. So the thing or person in its actual existence, its actual essence, what it is, that's its ontology. So God's, God's essential identity, who he is in his own person, is wrapped up in his name. He reveals himself as I am. I am. God's identity is the foundation of all of his activity in the world. It's just who he is. So God then, we might say, is the ultimate presuppositional person. You, you go all the way, drill down and go back, the, you know, the infinite regress thing. Uh, we've been recently in our house, <clears throat> we've had conversations a few times about um, what's the biggest number. And the biggest number is in, infinity. Well, what is that number? Like, put it on a decimal point and let's talk about it. Well, it doesn't stop. You can always keep adding. So it's sort of like this weird, unfathomable concept in mathematics. And God, of course, owns mathematics, too. So the bush, I mentioned the burning bush. The bush itself was on fire. The bush was not consumed. And um, sort of a, a moment of, wait, that's counterintuitive and very unscientific. <laughs> and what the point of the burning bush was, though, is it illustrated God's own inexhaustible and everlasting life. Um, the Bible calls God a consuming fire, but the tree wasn't being consumed. And that's because God is just infinite. He's perfectly inexhaustible. That's who God is. So his forever name is the bedrock of his revelation. He is, he is a living person. He is ruling. He has always existed. He never had a beginning. No one created God. He's uncreated, right? He's untouched. He's undiminished by men in creation. So God simply is. God simply is. He's the self-existing one. I am. 
He is, the Latin phrase, a se, the letter A and the letter S-E, two different words in Latin, a se, means he's from himself or he's of himself. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, flip to Isaiah 45. Just a quick couple of comments on that verse, or those verses. Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, Isaiah says a lot about God, but here, God's own declaration lies in the fact that there are no other gods. Notice that gods he's giving himself an exclusive claim. There's no other gods. Y'all create gods and worship them, but there's actually no other gods ultimately. In terms of his divinity, his eternality, his fully conscious, self-conscious existence, God knows everything about himself. He's not figuring things out about himself. He, he didn't learn something today about himself. Oh, I had no idea that I had that freckle there or something like that. He's fully self-conscious. He doesn't have anything. So anything to find or there's no potential in God. God, God isn't like existing and, well, oh, he could be better. He could have, there's potential, right? You know, assessing someone's skill. Yeah, he's all right. He, 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 there's potential with God. He, he, could, he could probably improve slightly. There's none of that in God. He just is who he is. So the, no one rivals him as a result. No one on earth, no one in creation rivals him. He is the precondition for all things like logic, all things like reason, the fact that we have a mind and use it to figure things out. He is the reason for that. Um, he is everything behind that which is intelligibility in the world, that we can look at a color and say, that's green, that's blue, or two plus two equals four. Things are intelligible because God is intelligent. So he alone imputes meaning and he guides history. He tells us what things mean. We have to follow his authority and, and so on and so forth. Um, Isaiah says he creates light and he creates darkness. He blesses and he curses. There, in other words, there are no limits to God. There's nothing that can limit him. Um, he is boundless. He is exclusive in his being God. There is no other. Now, there are dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of verses that we could have looked at. And I want to just read a few quick ones just because I wanted to give you a sampling that these verses speak of the immensity of God, the eternal nature of God, the, the godness of God. What, what is it we look to in the Bible to really figure out who this person is? So I'm going to reference some more later, but here's a few. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of the ages, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, Almighty, the Almighty. Psalm 102.27, but you are the same and your years have no end. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Malachi 3.6, great verse, well known. For I, the Lord, do not change. Pretty, pretty obvious with regard to the unchangeable nature of God. Uh, Job 41.11, listen closely. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The language in Hebrew means that there is no one who can get out in front of God and thus make God indebted to you. There's no indebtedness in God. You can't get out in front of him. And of course, Romans 11, we covered a couple weeks ago. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All that to say, from cover to cover, the Bible insists on the supreme absoluteness of God. What we are speaking about today is an insistence on the nature of God as he is in himself. 
not even as he is in relation to creation. We're talking about his transcendency. He, he's beyond creation in that sense. Who is this person? We want to know who God is. Okay, all of you should be driven by that question. I want to know who God is. Which means, by the way, as Augustine himself hastened to add before he expounded on his book on the Trinity, that we must do so humbly. We need to do it humbly, for it is a fairly, fairly difficult topic. So we have to have a, a little bit of humility. And so I, I approach this with, with that in mind. Um, we <laughs> Think of it this way. When you approach this sort of topic, we need to keep in mind that we are time and spatial bound creatures. We are time bound. We are space bound. We can only be present where we're at. We can't be present in multiple places, though. That would be a pretty fun experiment to be able to do. So we are finite, God is infinite. We are finite, God is infinite. We are, we are foolish, God is wise. And it is hard to use words to describe the indescribable. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't say anything at all, but it does mean that what we must say must be careful, must be judicious, and frankly, it needs to be in line with what can be determined from the Bible. We need to de describe God in the way that honors him. Now, the, the basic issue for the doctrine of God, this is going to be kind of like the foundational, ah, that's the thing he was getting at all day <laughs> or this, in this time here. The basic issue for the doctrine of God lies in the fact that God does not derive or receive any aspect of his being and person from something outside of himself. God does not derive meaning. He doesn't derive purpose. He doesn't derive anything. There's nothing in the world that can give God meaning that he already doesn't possess in and of himself. Okay, that's what we mean by classical Christian theism. Nothing outside of God gives God some additive or an, an addendum to his nature. Nothing. God is not caused to be something by some outside agency. There is nothing in the world. In order for God to be God, that has to be the true principle. He can't be uh, given extra, something extra by something else. Now, God, according to Hebrews 13.8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6. God did not create the world because he was lacking friendship. All right? God didn't create the world because he was lacking friendship. He just thought he'd you know, get the band together again. You know, that's not what it is. He didn't create man because he needed to fill something in himself. God was, you know, he, he was lonely and he thought, well, these creatures are nice. I'll make a bunch of them and let them reproduce and uh, it'll be a fun time. <laughs> that's not who God is. He is completely full. He's completely full, meaning he's not lacking something. He's completely self-aware, right? He doesn't have to figure things out that he doesn't know. And he's completely and utterly perfect in his being. As Dolezal and others have said, all that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. Now, to be a classical theist is to affirm certain things about God. You affirm divine aseity. I'll explain more as we go. Immutability, right? God doesn't change. You also affirm impassibility. Okay, stuff we're going to cover. Simplicity. When we call God simple, what do we mean by that? Um, you, you confess the eternality of God, that he is, he is eternal from ages to ages forevermore. You are God. You also affirm the unity of the three persons of the Godhead. So the, the, uh, those terms may be unfamiliar to you, but we're, I'm going to spend the rest of our time just examining them and making it clear. First, divine aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, divine aseity. When we speak of the aseity of God, we are talking about the ah-say of God, the fact that God is, quote, from himself. Um, Her Herman Bavink, I mentioned earlier, references and defines this Latin terminology of ah-say, stating that God is what he is through or by his own self. God is who he is perfectly and entirely in and of himself. All that God is, he is of himself. 
Um, he is I am, meaning he is the supreme. He is supreme in all aspects of his being, in all facets of reality. God is supreme. Um, his being or his, his essence, who he is, right? The metaphysics, God's goodness, the truth of God, beauty, logic, all of these things. In terms of space, all of God is God. God's not 90% God and 1% defective. He is all God. All being and all essence and everything is wrapped up in who he is. Um, Bobbing said he's this boundless ocean of being. He's big. He's present in all places at all times, right? Omnipresence. That is who God is. Now, God is not in a give-and-take relationship with his creation, meaning that he exists independently and perfectly apart from creation. So no one caused God to be, kids. No one said, all right, let's create this God and give him all of these attributes. No. He is uncaused. He's always been. He's always been there. There's nothing behind him, below him, or beside him, or anything apart from him that gives him meaning or purpose. He doesn't change. He is uncaused, and therefore he is whole. W-H-O-L-E. He is whole. Now, the English Puritan Stephen Sharnock speaks to the aseity of God. He said this, quote, God is of himself from no other. God hath no original. He hath no defect because he was not made of nothing. He hath no increase because he had no beginning. He was before all things and therefore depends upon no other thing, end quote. So to, to reiterate, the aseity of God refers to the fact that God is being not becoming. He's being, not becoming. Um, the, the famous existentialist humanist uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, his famous book was Being um, and Nothingness. And uh, he, he gets a couple of things right in terms of uh, philosophically it's intelligible that nothing exists and then things exist. Um, you, you have to start with something in the universe, right? Maybe it was just a bunch of molecules. Who, who, how do they get there? We don't know, right? That's what the humanist thinks, but we know how they got there because God put them there because he is the un, uh, uncaused cause of things. So he's being, not becoming. God is exclusive in himself. He's eternal, uncaused, unchanging. He's absolute and he's complete. So you can't add something to God's being. He doesn't become. It's, God cannot become more than what he is. He just is what he is. Uh, he doesn't become something else by virtue of something, something else. So that's the aseity of God. Second, the immu immutability. Immutability. The doctrine of immutability, can't say that, which stems from God's aseity is the fact that God is completely and entirely consistent with himself. He's consistent with who he is. It's not one day he's having a bad day and he's just ready for a nap or something. You know, th think of the toddler years. <laughs> they just need a nap and it fixes the world immediately. God doesn't struggle with those things from day to day at all. He's entirely consistent with himself. He doesn't make decisions that make him regret it, right? He is necessarily perfect. He doesn't grow and mature. God does not grow and mature, meaning he can't change or improve or decline in morality. None of that happens with God. And being the creator and not the creation, he isn't subject to change either. This whole Nietzsche, God is dead declaration. <laughs> you can't touch him. You, you can't even make that declaration. It's unintelligible. You think we evolved from apes. Yeah, right. You, you're on the wrong foundation there, buddy. See, immutability refers to the fact that God doesn't change. He doesn't change. His self-existence is perfect and complete. He is, therefore, not subject to change. He is not subject to transition. He doesn't go through transitions or um, alterations, we could say, as well. Now, because God is completely self-aware, as we talked about last week, God doesn't fail in his promises to his people. It's impossible for God to fail. Do you remember the weird incident with the flaming pot and Abraham goes to sleep and the animals are cut in half and the pot goes through? And God was, um, usually when you cut a covenant, both parties walk through it. And it's simply an oath that says, look, if this oath fails by any one of us, may we be chopped in half. May we die if we don't fulfill this oath. 
Well, God put Abraham to sleep. Abraham has the dream. God goes through this himself. In other words, if God doesn't fulfill the promise, cut God in half. But can God possibly not fulfill his promises? No, because he's consistent with who he is. He doesn't make a promise and then have regret. You know what, man? Those people are pretty recalcitrant blowhards. I should probably just smite them from the earth. No, he doesn't say any of that. He is who he is and there's no alteration. So being changeless, changeless doesn't mean that God is indifferent to the world. Rather, in his own perception, in his own perception, he reveals himself to his creation in, in different, oftentimes mysterious ways. Because God is perfect, he doesn't need to change. For changing, if it were possible for God to change, then it would add something to his perfection. Thus, he wouldn't be perfect. And thus, guess what? He's not God. So no outside force can adjust his being. Thus, when we see things happen, for example, in this time-bound universe, we are not to think that God has changed his mind on things. This is uh, apparently a point of contention that I've had many uh, theological arguments about. Well, God changed. Clearly, he changed his mind. Moses interposed and yada, yada. No, God does not change. You don't want to open that door. That's, that's the path to open theism where God doesn't actually know the future. What changes is his revelation and our understanding of that revelation. He reveals himself in different ways. Our perception of that revelation is what changes, not himself and his person. So rather, God unchangeably, think of it this way, God unchangingly wills things that do change with his creatures without violating his already unchanging actuality. I'll say it again. God unchangingly wills things that do change with his creatures without violating his already unchanging actuality. Third thing, impassibility. I don't know if you've ever heard of the impassibility of God, but here we go. Impassibility simply refers to the fact that God's feelings are not beyond his control. God's feelings are not beyond his control. Creatures like us, we have feelings that come and go. Sometimes they're inconsistent with each other. And we talked about that in the Reconstructing the Heart series a couple years ago. Uh, for now, just know that the doctrine of impassibility means that not that God is passive and unfeeling. Rather, God doesn't move into new experiences of feeling as a result of an outside force. Okay, you're driving down the road and someone rear-ends your car. Your feeling of glee as you sip your latte and a moment of, you know, nirvana. <laughs> I don't know if I've had a coffee that ever put me there, but um, you get rear-ended and, and first you, you experience a rush of feelings, right? Oh no, what just happened? Oh no, how bad is it? Is everyone okay? Is my neck okay? What psychopath wasn't paying attention? And then you get angry. Then you look at the damage. Oh no, I have to deal with the insurance now. No one likes that. Those are a rush of feelings that you experience from some outside of your control thing that happened to you. God does not have that experience at all. Not a moment does he ever experience a rush of feelings from some outside thing. It's, it's not like Adam and Eve sinned and God said, well shoot, that didn't work. And he felt regret for creating, you know. I mean, the Bible does express his regret um, several times, but um, that's just his revelation of, of, of who he is in that moment. So, um, A.W. Pink said this. Uh, he said that God gives to all and is enriched by none. God gives to all and is enriched by none. Worshiping God by singing to him, praying to him, doing what we do in obedience to him each and every day doesn't enrich God. You don't add something to him. He's not, a, he's not on the edge of his seat every Sunday. Oh, good, it's Sunday. My people are going to gather and worship me. He's like insecurely needing praise in order to make himself feel better because last week was rough. God is none of that. No one encroaches on the feelings of God and stirs him. He's unstirrable. That's a word, right? Unstirrable. In, in some, I don't know, we'll think about it later, but... He's perfectly impassable. That's what it means. Now, a side note. 
Clearly, the Bible does use anthropomorphic language that does attribute emotions to God. We are humans who experience human things, and we project, in a, in a lot of ways, those human things on God. That's what we call anthropomorphic language. Anthropos is a Greek word for, for he, um, human or man, so that's anthropology, you get it. Um, so this doesn't undermine our doctrine at all. In fact, I think it proves the doctrine, meaning that God does have emotions, and God does have emotions that are perfectly um, in check with who he is. He's never unstable. He, he's never not in control of his feelings. He's never experiences doubt and regret, that type of stuff. He has those feelings perfectly in himself. The emotions that we see in Jesus, for example, in, in uh, John 11, when his friend Lazarus dies, and remember uh, John 11:35, 35, the, Jesus wept. And so we have God incarnate weeping. He's experiencing emotion. So that doesn't derail this doctrine at all. It just simply means that God does have feelings, but it's merely the revelation of God, not a change in God. Does that make sense? He doesn't change, but he does have these experiences um, in, in like Jesus did. And it's a revelation of God, that God is saddened by death. Third or fourth thing, simplicity, the doctrine of simplicity. We confess as classical Christian theists that God is simple. God is simple. Now, we do not mean that he is boring or unentertaining or not complicated. That's not what we mean by simple. Divine simplicity means that God is not composed of parts. God is not composed of parts. It was in the Belgic Confession um, Augustine taught this. It's been a teaching um, all throughout the ages, and I think the Bible does, in fact, teach us it quite clearly. God is not composed of parts. Now, if your car doesn't have an engine, is it a car? Yeah. Philosophical question here. <laughs> all right. Um, if your car doesn't have an engine, is it a car? Well, we can say for certain one thing. It's not a fully functioning car, correct? It may look nice. It's a big, expensive paperweight for the biggest paper ever. But <laughs> it's not really a car because we know what a car is supposed to do. It's supposed to drive down the road. Okay, if it doesn't have tires, you can't drive it down the road. It's not really a great car. So in this sense, the car needs parts in order to be a car, right? God is not this way. Since God is not dependent on anyone or anything, it follows that he is not a composite being. He's not composed of sections and things. If he were dependent on parts to be who he is, he'd be dependent on someone else for the parts, be it a mechanic or an auto engineer or somebody like that, a manufacturer. And as we've already said, God doesn't derive his being and nature from anyone else. He's sufficient in who he is. All that is in God is God. So God is entirely identical with his identity and his essence. It's not that God possesses existence. He is existence. It's not that God possesses immutability. He is immutable. You understand? They, it's, it's, this is a tricky doctrine. He, he is divinity completely and entirely all the way through. Dolezal writes this, he says, In his essence, it is not one thing to be good, another thing to be wise, another thing to be powerful, and so on. This is what we call the attributes of God. Rather, the reality in virtue of which all these things are truly said of God is nothing but his own simple divinity. End quote. In other words, we don't look at his love towards sinners, his wrath towards sinners, his wisdom, his power, his might, and conclude that those are sections or parts of God, like, sli like a slice of pizza. You cut it up and there's eight slices, right? Or more, depending. But it's not like one slice is God's love and another slice is his wisdom and another slice of the pizza is his wrath towards sin. It's, he's not composed of parts. He's all of that all the time in every way. So nothing exists in God that is not completely identical with his divinity. Those attributes, they're communicated in real time things that are communicated to us are simply expressions of his being and divine nature. When, when Christ died on the cross, there was a moment of wrath against sin, and God hates sin. He's furious with it. But that's not one section of his personality. That's the entirety of, the, of who he is. He hates sin. It's just consistent with his nature. 
So he's not made up of wisdom and love and power and all these different components like a car. Rather, he is all those things all together all the time. Isaiah 40, 14 says, Whom did he consult and who, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Right? No one teaches God those things because he is all of those things at all times. Fifth, two more. Fifth, eternity. Eternity. Isaiah 41.4 says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Psalm 8, verse 1 says that God's glory is, quote, above the heavens. So when we say that God is eternal, we mean that there was never a time or space in which God was not there. There was never a time, there was never a space where God was not immediately present and fully present. He is not just above time, he is beyond time. He is not an alpha finding his way to, to become an omega, right? He is both. Being uncreated and thus always in existence, God does not become affected by the creation of time as we know it. He is timeless. Now, simplicity, what we just described, requires eternality because God doesn't go searching in space and time for some aspect of his being, and nor does some aspect of space and time give him his being. God didn't create the world to feel good. Because he created it and said, this is good, this is good. A declaration of goodness, right? But it was good because it came from him. He is good. Everything about him is good. So he's eternal in that way. So God is eternal. He doesn't experience successive states of being like we do, right? We get our, you know, our, our New Year resolution together. I'm going to become something that I'm not. I'm going to try to become the successive state of being. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to read my Bible more. And I'm going to get past Leviticus this time in my Bible reading. And like we, we have these successive states of being. God is not like that at all. He doesn't experience that type of thing. So he has no future. God has no future. God has no past of which to derive something. All things are equally present to God at all places and all times. Everything is equally uh, a part of that. You know, I declared the end from the beginning, Isaiah says. So one Puritan writer said, God unchangeably exists while time is in progression. God unchangeably exists while time is in progression. I read Psalm 90, verse 2 earlier. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is eternal. Six, last thing. Okay. Trinity. God is triune. And I'm just going to tell you the doctrine of the Trinity deserves far more time than I have left, so I'm going to do my best to make sure that this is understood. And this is no small thing. This is a very important thing. Um, a lot of um, um, sects and very different uh, religious schisms, are. a lot of them go back to this issue of the Trinity and the triune nature of God. Within the simplicity and aseity of God, we have this truth that God exists as the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we don't have, if we don't anchor our view of the Trinity in these aforementioned attributes, like the simplicity of God, the aseity of God, then we'll end up in heresy land and very fast. Christianity affirms this, based on the authority and infallibility of the Scripture, that one, there is only one God. That's monotheism. There is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4. There is only one God. Two, there are three persons who are distinct relationally from each other who are God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father, right? Just relationally distinct, key word. Three, these persons are co-equal and co-eternal in their dignity, and excuse me, their divinity and their simplicity. Okay, co-equal, co-eternal. There is no subordination in the Trinity. Theologians, modern-day theologians like Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, uh, many of them have been teaching subordinationism, that the Father is more important and then the Son just figures out what the Father does. That happened in history, but in God's own nature and being, there is no subordinationism. God's, the, the, the Spirit and the Son are not subordinate to the Father in His being. So, we don't believe in modalism. We don't believe in modalism, which denies any, any meaningful distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, uh, the famous T.D. Jakes, 
teaches modalism. That's a heresy. It's false teaching. It's not one God who sometimes he wears the father hat, sometimes he wears the son hat, sometimes if he feels like it, he wears the spirit hat. No, three distinct persons. We also reject Arianism, which was an ancient heresy uh, that taught that Christ wasn't actually divine. We are not tri-theists. We don't believe that there are three gods. All right? When we say that God is one in three, we mean what Boving said. Boving said, the oneness of God does not only consist in a unity of singularity, but also in a unity of simplicity. Meaning there's no part, the three persons aren't one, each one part of God. That's not how we think of God. They are God. Those persons are God. That's who God is. And, is, and that's why the doctrine of simplicity matters a lot. We're not saying that those three together make up God. They're not parts of God. It's God's very nature to be tri-personal. So God then is one substance and is not divided in his nature and his being. The ancient theologians, uh, the Council of Nicaea, they talked about homoousis, the Greek word, the substance of God. They're all the, those three are the substance of God. That's who they are. The Father and Son and the Spirit are the substance of God. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one substance, power, and eternity. The, the three persons are one and the same being. Now, there isn't three essences of God or three substances of God. The three persons don't somehow add being to God. It's simply what it means to be God. One God, three persons. So the distinction, though, of the three persons is thus rooted in their relationship to each other. That's how we make the distinction. Their relationship to each other. Not in terms of their substance and essence of God. Their relationship to each other. We have to distinguish between them. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, the Spirit breathes forth the Word and the will of God. So it may seem strange to say this. I'm going to say it twice so we get it. When we speak of the three, we are at the very same time speaking of the one. We are finite. I am uttering intelligible words to you who understands them with your ears. When I say there is one God, I am in that very same moment, counterintuitively, I can't say two things at the same time. I'm saying them at the same time though. Does that make sense? Like I'm saying there's one God in saying and uttering the phrase, there is one God. And you understood me to say there is one God. I am also in that moment, in that second saying, there are three persons in this one God. That's the mind-blowingness of God. That's the finitude. One theologian said, Simplicity lays itself down as a fundamental rule of Trinitarian doctrine. God is his own essence or nature, and the persons themselves are his nature. So this is the perfect balance of the one and the many. God is equally ultimate in both oneness and many. Oneness and many. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. The Spirit is likewise in both. And this is all because they are the same essence and being of God. We don't believe in three gods. The New Testament, several places. Matthew 3.16 and 17. Matthew 28.19. 2 Corinthians 13.14. Those are all examples of the New Testament teaching the Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism. Question 8. Are there more than one God, right? Are there more gods than one? Children, are there more gods than one? No. No. There is but one, only one living and true God. Question nine. How many persons are in the Godhead? Children, how many persons are in the Godhead? Three. So we're saying there's one God, there's three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And these are one true eternal God, the same substance, equal in power and glory, although diminished uh, distinguished by their personal properties. That's our confession. That's what we believe. And people look at you like you're crazy. You know, you believe in three gods. No, no, no. I believe in one God. And I'm saying that there are three persons too. Three persons, one God. Now, just a few final like application. I'm going to have to rush through this. I don't have much, but um, things to consider, okay? Because this is important. When we, the, the reason that we need an accurate doctrine of God for the future of Christendom is because the world will never run out of the manufacturing and supplying of other idols and other gods. They're just churning them up all the time. Other gods. Let's make the state god again. We keep doing that one. It's getting annoying. Um, now, when I say the world will never run out, eventually they will because Christ will footstool all of his enemies. We know that, 1 Corinthians 15. 
But false gods are always vying for attention. They are always claiming sovereignty from the true God. They want to predestine. They want to be omnipotent, right? They want to be all-powerful. They want to be all-omniscient, all-knowing, right? That's why the state's just putting cameras and everything out. They want to see everything. It's 1984 come to life. Yay. Um, they, want, that's, they want to be God. Um, omnipresent, right? Everywhere. They, they want to have um, everything and everywhere so they know what's going on. They are always in the public square trying to woo people into their clutches. These are false gods. They're everywhere. So we must know them and we must topple them, right? R.C. Sproul once quipped, he said, we don't know who God is and as a result, we don't know who we are. He was uh, frustrated at a question he had received. That was the famous, what's wrong with you people comment? Because it was a dumb question, but you know. I think he's right. We don't know who God is. We have so many people today who don't know who God is. They don't understand his simplicity, his aseity. They don't understand his immutability, his eternality. They don't understand the Trinity, which is the only way you can make sense of the one and the, and the many, the, the universals and the particulars. All these theologians and um, the Buddhists and, and people are trying to figure out all this unity and yet diversity, and they can't figure it out because they're not Trinitarian. So knowledge of God gives rise to knowledge of self. And knowledge of self gives rise to knowledge of the world. And so we're supposed to know God. And by knowing God, we can thus obey God. So far too many Christians are in love with a God that's made in their image. A God who is described in terms of man and man's rationale. A God who is made in the image of man. A God who suits their passions and their desires. Right? You've heard it said, I could never believe in a God that would send people to hell. I can't believe in that God either because it's a false God that you've created in your mind. No one should believe that. They don't know who God is. These gods are empty-headed, are as empty-headed as the people who make them. They too must be toppled in the church and in the world. The future of Christendom is the promise of Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's our future. That's where all of this is headed. And we must know God so we can be changed by God so that we can be in obedience to God. We have to be familiar with the one triune God, the one true triune God, so that we may teach others about him. And in teaching them about him, we make disciples. And guess what? When we make disciples, we change the world. That's the game plan. So know God, know who you are as a result, and thus you know the world. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do give you the glory and the praise today. And, and I do ask for your favor in this. As it's a humble thing trying to describe you, the indescribable. But what's brilliant about this moment is we have just bowed our heads and come to you in prayer and we can talk to you. And we can talk to you because Christ has opened that up for us. So we are thankful for his death, his resurrection. We're thankful for his current session as Lord of Lords right now. And we ask and pray that these doctrines would, would, would penetrate our hearts, penetrate our minds, so that we can know you and we can know who we are. Father, we want it to be true that the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So would you help us in that, in our mission to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. We ask for your favor now. May your spirit send us out, the breath of God who energizes us and sustains us each day. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen.